I'm Owen from Bite Size Irish Gaelic and welcome to episode 22, Iver a Fihado of the Bite Size Irish Gaelic podcast. Even if you're alone learning to speak Irish outside of Ireland, don't despair. Rest assured that there are thousands like you across the globe, all interested in tapping into Ireland's native culture. And for all about this podcast, go to www.bitesizeirishgaelic.com forward slash podcast. And today I'm joined by Finn Dwyer of the Irish History Podcast. Finn, fall to road, how are you? Uh, not too bad, thanks very much for having me on. It's very nice to talk to you. You're, I'll say historian, is that fair to say? Yeah, I am. You're well into the old times of Ireland and I thought that would be really interesting to bring you onto the show and interweave that with our own interest in the Irish language. You run a really popular podcast called the Irish History Podcast so I hope people listening to this if they haven't already come across you that they'll find you maybe on iTunes or we'll do more shout outs Finn for how people can find out more from you at the end of the show. I liked it on your site, you say that you're telling it like it was. Right, that's the intention. <laughs> so, I guess before we get into the subject itself, how did you get into being any bit interested in Irish history? Because I just remember it in school and at the time, it just wasn't something that really, you know, called me. So, it must have been a bit different for you, was it? I was always interested in history. I studied archaeology and classics in college and then I worked as an archaeologist for a few years in Dublin until the recession in 2008 so then I kind of there's not much work in archaeology and I didn't really want to go back into it even if it did pick up so then that's when I kind of began to diversify back into history. Excellent and obviously archaeology brings you into that kind of stuff but I guess if you specialize in history they kind of interweave don't they telling the story and Oh, they do, yeah. Like particularly, there's a strong overlap between medieval history and medieval archaeology. Archaeology will often can be used, I suppose, to test historical theories. You know, it can prove whether something exists or doesn't. You know, when you come across stuff in documents, obviously you can't necessarily always believe everything that's written down. And archaeology at different times has been very important to prove, or in some cases disprove, some of the things you would believe about the past. Hmm. Interesting. And have you had the chance, like in your past life, were you out in the field and digging or how did it turn out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was. I did that for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. In the rain? In the rain, in the in our weather, actually. <laughs> hey, rain or shine. So, uh, yeah, no, that was an interesting enough job to do that. I did that for a couple of years, but uh, there's not, since the recession, there hasn't been very much work in archaeology. Tell me, it sounds like uh, you live in Dublin, am I right? I do live in Dublin, yeah, but I'm originally from Kilkenny, actually. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, like, Dublin city itself, archaeology-wise and history, medieval history-wise, that city itself is rich with findings and the history and... Before we go into anything Irish language, like, could you give me a little idea of how Dublin city itself started? Yeah, well, the earliest settlement in Dublin was a Gaelic-Irish settlement that no one knows exactly when it was founded. Uh, that was a, what I mean, it was something the size of what we would call a small village. The most important date, I suppose, in Dublin's history is 841, 
when Vikings, who were Scandinavian raiders and traders, established a kind of fortified settlement close to where Dublin Castle stands today. And then slowly but surely, what we know of as medieval Dublin grew out of this settlement. In 1170, it was conquered by the Normans. And slowly but surely, it grew into, by about 1300, it had become a city of about 10,000 people covering hundreds of acres. It's about 44 acres of a walled city and then several big suburbs where a majority of the population lived. Hmm. And, like, I'm always interested in kind of the mix of peoples, especially since you mentioned, like, it started as a Gaelic-Irish settlement, but along came the Vikings. So would it have been a little village or town of Viking settlers um, after 841? Or do you think there was kind of a mixture of cultures all throughout? Or There would have always been quite a strong mixing of cultures and backgrounds. Like at the earliest point, like say, for example, the arrival of the Vikings in particular, there would have been quite a violent period. So there's probably going to have been less interaction, obviously, when you get more violence. But that changes over time. You get intermarriage. Obviously, with towns as well, people want to live in towns because they just generally and always have, even in the medieval period, offer more opportunity and generally speaking, more freedom, probably. So under the Normans, then you get an even much wider diversity. So you'd have Gaelic Irish people, you'd have people of Scandinavian descent who are generally known as Hiberno-Norse, but they kind of get subsumed into the wider population. But you would have them. You obviously have the Normans who come from England and Normandy, but you also had Flemish merchants. You would have had, at times, small communities of Italians, probably in Dublin as well coming from Genoa and Venice in particular. Dublin in the later medieval period, so from about 1170 onwards, was a much more diverse place than we might expect. Interesting. And I don't know, do you know, or can you speculate, like, the settlements of these peoples? Like, would they have, I can't say nationality, but their backgrounds, would they have kind of clumped together that there'd be a little village of Vikings and... (laughs) Well, certainly, like, in the, on the north side of Dublin, there's an area called Smithfield. Around the modern area of Smithfield was one of the medieval suburbs of Dublin, known as Oxman Town. And Oxman Town comes from the term Eastman, Eastman being the Vikings. So traditionally, it was thought that the Viking population of Dublin had been forced out of the city after the Normans conquered it in 1170. This is highly debated now, though. Certainly, maybe the prominent families were forced out of the city outside the walled city, which is all based on the south side of the river, out to what became Oxman Town. But I don't think Dublin wasn't big enough really to have very distinctive, like in some of the bigger European cities, for example, Constantinople would have had like quarters, like in a lot or in Italian or like a, a Genoese quarter. Constantinople had a population of several hundred thousand. Dublin was a much smaller settlement, so I don't think you would really have had... You probably would have had areas where the poorest, they would be predominantly Gaelic-Irish, so you might have had other reasons why different aspects of the population would be seen to come together, but it didn't have, like, quarters as such, certainly not in the medieval period. These do develop, obviously, over time, but not so much in Dublin before the 14th century, anyway. And give us a picture, like, so we've been talking about Dublin and at the same time, I guess, or correct me if I'm wrong, other cities were rising as well in Ireland. Is that true? Yeah, although I would say like what we call cities were settlements in the medieval period. So like I say, just that Dublin was like 10,000 was the biggest. So it's not really, when we say city, obviously we think of a settlement maybe of like 
hundreds or tens of thousands. So these are all very small. So like Kilkenny emerged in this period when it has about three or four thousand people. Cork is probably smaller. Drada is probably bigger. So you might have a population of around five thousand in Drada. And New Ross is also a very important settlement around this point. Probably it's the most important port in Ireland. Galway and Limerick will be smaller again. They're obviously more isolated out from the West Coast. I guess what you could say is you get the development of urban life. And there's lots of other smaller towns. There's probably dozens, if not hundreds, of smaller towns emerge across Ireland as well. Yes. So what do you think more rural Ireland would have been, even just miles outside of Dublin? Like, were there a scattering of little small towns or was it really distributed peasants? No, uh, generally it seems that in rural areas people tended to live in settlements together and then would go out and farm the land. So you'd have very small villages maybe, but you'd also have lots of larger towns that might have, you know, maybe a couple of hundred people. And this all happened after the Norman Conquest. They quite intensely planned the landscape after the conquest. So they developed specific areas with specific towns. So the town would have a, a market in it, you know, so they would be able to export the surplus of what they were growing in the conquered territories. Mm. So it was kind of a way to optimize the output of what the economy was producing. Was it a bit like that? Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's certainly integral to it. Because Ireland becomes a colony in this period, and export is obviously very crucial to having a successful colony, particularly in the southeast. Having lots of market towns is very important as well. You can't have trade without markets. So that's, I think, partially the reason. There's lots of other reasons too, but that's probably the key reason, you know. Interesting. And a colony of the Normans or someone else? No, it's a Norman colony, yeah, where people would generally think it's not even, I guess, yet really fully formed an English colony because the Normans had invaded England themselves in 1066 and then they invaded Ireland in 1166 or 1169, rather. So they still speak French, actually, a lot of them when they come here. Like, French survives in Kilkenny till the 14th century. Certainly it's been written in Kilkenny. So they would speak different varieties of English as well. And like you very briefly mentioned it, but who are the Normans? Where did they come from? The Normans come from a region in France called Normandy. I guess it became most famous in D-Day. It's where the D-Day landings took place. In the year 900, a Viking warlord called Rollo was settled in Normandy by the King of France. He basically couldn't stop them raiding. So they came to a deal basically where Rollo and several of his followers were settled in Normandy. So it became known as Northman's Territory or Normandy. Um, they invade, then they invaded England in 1066 and from England then they invaded Ireland in 1169. In a very different circumstances, the two invasions are not the same. They're invited actually into Ireland in 1169. I can't really conceptualise it. Like, How would it have been that they colonized was it like a military takeover or how did it work yeah it's quite a violent military takeover they initially were invited in as part of a ongoing row that had been going on within a Gaelic kingdom of Leinster they were invited in by one faction led by Dermot the Macmurra well it was a dispute between the king of Leinster and several other kings in Ireland the Normans were invited in by Macmurra to help him Part of this deal, though, McMurray promised them land, and basically after that, they began to take more and more land. So by 1240, they've taken about 75% of the island. But yeah, the Norman conquest is a very violent event, probably the most violent thing that had happened in Ireland up until that date anyway. So I was interested, you were telling me about 
how there were deals made with the local kings of Ireland. So I was asking you whether the locals played along. Yes, yeah, so for example, one of the areas where there was the greatest level of resistance in later centuries was the Wicklow Mountains, but for the first century, from 1170 up until 1270, almost nothing happens in the Wicklow Mountains. And it's actually a famine that provokes the first major revolt in 1270. Conversely, in parts of the West, there'd been constant revolt bubbling up. Depends, different people react differently. Some Gaelic families support the Normans. Others try to fight it, generally speaking. It's not a rule, but generally speaking, the more powerful Gaelic families generally will try and resist the Normans because they've got the most amount to lose. Then as well, within families, you'll have different factions supporting the Normans and different factions opposing them. So a classic case would be the most powerful Gaelic Irish family was the O'Neills of Ulster. For the 13th and early 14th century, the O'Neill family is divided between two factions, one who supports the Normans and another who is absolutely and violently opposed to them. And they're constantly fighting each other for control of the O'Neill kingdom which is centred around modern Tyrone. Hmm. Interesting, which is in Northern Ireland today. So give me a bit of an idea too, because it's really interesting. <laughs> we're kind of jumping around here, but it is really interesting how there were Gaelic families and you called them kings, or would you call them that? Yeah, on the eve of the Norman invasion in the 1160s, there would certainly have been five or six major kings who actually had were key players so you would have had the king of the O'Neills in Ulster was a very important person the king of Connacht the king of Munster the king of Leinster king of Austria was also an important player and then the king of Mead you had lots of other smaller kings as well who are less who aren't really independent though their actions are very much dictated by more powerful players after the conquest though most of these kingdoms are destroyed but they start to emerge about two centuries later. So, for example, in 1328, the first Gaelic king of Leinster is selected for the first time since the invasion. So it takes like almost 250 years to pass by before there's enough power among the Gaelic Irish to elect a new king or to select a new king. They're not really elected. And how did that even happen that if for a couple of centuries they didn't have the power that it turned out that they could? Because by 1328, huge swathes of Leinster had fallen from Norman control, so you could actually have a functioning Gaelic society again. But you couldn't have had this before that, you know. Hmm. And how come the Normans weren't able to hold control? It's a classic case of a um, societal collapse. Quite a complex. It happens for several reasons. The Norman colony is politically very internally divided, which creates huge trouble for them. They also face an environmental crisis in the late 13th century, which also creates massive problems. What kind of crisis, environmental crisis? It's not entirely certain uh, what we do know. So traditionally, people used to think that it got colder, although some historians today would question this. The climate certainly got more erratic, that it it rained more, and this can be seen in historical records through increased periods of famine. But like, there's very bad weather in the 1270s, there's bad weather again in the 1290s and then pretty much every decade following the 1290s you get really, really bad weather. Several years of very bad weather every decade after that. Okay. And I want to bring it back down to like the little people. So there's the Gaelic kings of Ireland on the eve of the Norman conquest and the Normans come along, they take control. 
But little Sean and Podrick, they're down in the fields, working the fields, I guess, all through this, right? Like, first of all, do you think that life would have changed for them much over the centuries? Or was it always a rural farmer working the fields, pretty much? Yeah, it's very difficult to tell. I suspect that life becomes more violent, certainly. Life definitely becomes more violent for the period of the invasion. Whether people were better off in the Norman areas or Gaelic areas, if you're just, say, a serf on the land, I don't think you're necessarily any better. That said, Gaelic Irish people in Norman areas have no legal rights at all. So that is a drawback, obviously. But in medieval society, the poor don't really have a position. There's no such thing as human rights at all. People conceptualise the world in a very different way. So it's very difficult to tell that difference because we don't have a huge amount of information about what Gaelic Irish areas were like, particularly after the invasion, because society collapses, you know, so it's not clear at all. Like the records aren't great. Like compare we have relatively good records for the Norman invasion for the Norman areas. So I suspect there wasn't a huge difference. When wars are fought, it's the poor that pay though. That's the biggest problem. So as society in Ireland becomes more violent in the late thirteenth and early fourteenth century, it's the poor that generally pay. So a lord from this area or that area attacks a rival lord, he very rarely will actually get the lord. He'll just attack his peasants, burn his land. So it can be a very difficult period for that. And it's not something that you specialise in at all, but I am interested in your views of it with the Irish language. And my presumption here is that when we talk about Gaelic Ireland, that those people, the peasants or the kings themselves would have been speaking Irish along the way. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they go right throughout the medieval period. The vast majority of the population will speak Irish. There's lots of languages being spoken in Ireland at the time. You have French forms of English. Latin will be used as a written language quite extensively. But Irish would be obviously a majority of the population being from Gaelic areas will speak Irish I would imagine it's very difficult to tell, though, but I would imagine people are far more multilingual than we would expect and possibly than maybe people even are today. So if you live in Dublin, it's probably very important that you can speak Irish, probably French and probably English because you need to be able to trade with different people. Now, there's lots of different dialects of these tongues, so it's more complicated than just speaking one or the other like this. But I would imagine people could speak bits and pieces of lots of different languages. Mm, very interesting. Now, although, would that have been just concentrated in people who were traders, like who actually had to go down to the street and do some trading with the vast majority of the population not being exposed to that? Yeah, but like most people can't move off the land without the Lord's permission. So they won't have any need for learning a language like French, maybe that would be needed for long distance trade. Or like it's not French, but it'll be a, a medieval form of like um, a dialect that they spoke in Normandy or whatever. Like it's not actually modern French at all. Irish would have been a, the day-to-day language for most people. That continues right throughout the medieval and nearly modern period up until I'm sure, I wouldn't like to say exactly when, but certainly I'd say the 17th or 18th century, Irish would have been probably the majority language. There's no real reason why people need to break with the language, you know. It's only a relatively modern thing that people, particularly through the rise of in kind of industrial society in other places, that people wanted to learn other languages to go and work elsewhere. You know, the traditional motivation to emigrate, like, you know. Yeah, so I was going to ask you that because I was interested in a lot of people listening to us are people whose ancestors came from Ireland, but they haven't grown up in Ireland. And I've always been interested in kind of figuring out 
whether or not those people who left Ireland spoke Irish as a native tongue themselves or did they kind of learn English along the way, something like that. So you're thinking that people would have, have learned to speak English not only for the general promise of better economic times, but to be able to go, say, to the United States. Is that right? I think it's certainly a factor. I think, as I understand it now, and this is by no means my area of expertise, but in the certainly in the 19th century, it increasingly became seen that to speak English was kind of advancement. And there's obviously there is a truth to that because to emigrate, but also in terms of it was very much the language of business in Ireland even. So for people to progress, they needed to speak English. And I think what does a huge amount of damage as well, though obviously to the Irish language is the famine. That some of the real, just for tangentially related reasons, the famine happened to be very, very extreme in areas where you would have had high concentrations of Irish speakers, particularly out in the west of Ireland. Mm, yeah, and there's lots of topics like the famine that we've only skimmed across and we're running out of time ourselves. And I did want to mention the penal laws as well, but we didn't even go there. Finn, I'd be interested, like, what's your own, just not as a historian, but maybe as a historian, but just as a guy living in Dublin, do you feel that the Irish language is any part of Ireland today? And you don't have to answer either way. Like, you don't have to give us a biased answer. Yeah, I do. Well, I think cultural diversity is always a good thing. Like, I think the development of kind of the monoculture that you see emerging tends to be what Hollywood creates as becoming kind of soul culture is not a good thing. That said, I don't think people should be forced to learn Irish like they are in Ireland because like forcing people to do anything never really works. But yeah, I think it has an important place in our society. But I also think conversations around it need to be very carefully thought out because there's lots of people now who live in Ireland who maybe come from other places and they need to be made feel welcome and that it would be bad if Irish became a kind of an exclusionary tool, like it has like similar situations in other parts of Europe where language got heavily tied into race, which I don't think should happen here. Very interesting. I like hearing that. I like hearing your view. I've heard before that um, at least at the peak of the Celtic Tiger, so a couple of years ago, that there were certainly more Polish speakers than Irish language speakers on a daily basis in Ireland. Yeah. Which I always found interesting. So I was going to ask you, Finn, where can people find out more about you? So I mentioned the Irish History Podcast. Where can they find that? iTunes is always a great place to get your podcast. So you can find it there. If you just search in iTunes for Irish History or Irish History Podcast, you'll come across it. Otherwise, you can go to my blog, which is irishhistorypodcast.ie. And you will find it there. So either of those, irishhistorypodcast.ie or iTunes, you can find plenty of podcasts there. Excellent. I love it. Finn, um, thanks so much for coming on to the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks very much for having me. And just to say that I'm sure there's people listening and they're bubbling with questions and we might talk with Finn in the future again. I don't know, but send on your questions to the show notes page. So to leave a comment for this episode of the Bite Size Irish podcast, go to bitesizeirishgaelic.com forward slash podcast and find episode 22. And if you're loving the show, we'd love to get a written review from you on iTunes ourselves as well. You can send in your listener questions and any feedback you have for me directly by emailing me at podcast at bitesizeirishgaelic.com 
and thanks to Tsukumo for their music which you hear on this episode under a Creative Commons license. And until the next episode, Slan Gafoy. Bye for now.